This hour, Hunter Biden is going into court. Donald Trump is coming out of court. We're following it all. The lead starts right now. Donald Trump gets a second chance. He's allowed to speak at the closing arguments in his civil fraud trial. What he said and why a judge then shut it down. And one day after Hunter Biden's shock appearance on Capitol Hill, he is now back home in California facing federal charges. And now the first lady, his mom, is weighing in. And a stunning rise in public officials targeting in targeted in dangerous swatting incidents. That's when hoax 911 calls report fake violent crimes to get a police response and possibly real police violence against innocent victims. I'm going to speak with a Republican who has faced threats and ask him what needs to happen for these cases to stop. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead. The final moments of Donald Trump's civil fraud trial are playing out right now in a New York courtroom, a trial that cuts to the heart of everything that Donald Trump has built his name on. The New York Attorney General, uh, Letitia James's office, is, is finishing up their closing arguments right now. Uh, they are trying to make the case that Donald Trump and his adult sons, Donnie and Eric, and their company defrauded banks and insurance companies by lying about the value of their assets. The New York Attorney General wants Trump to pay $370 million in fine and for him to be banned from ever doing business in New York State again. The judge, we should note, has already found Donald Trump liable on one of the seven counts. Trump's team has rejected all of the claims of fraud from the very beginning, and they're alleging without proof that Donald Trump is being prosecuted because he is running for office. Donald Trump, once again, tried to turn the courtroom into a campaign appearance today. He delivered a five-minute monologue full of complaints in the courtroom. That led the judge to tell Trump's lawyers to get his client under control. Mr. Trump then took his grievances down the street, to the microphones at one of his New York properties. There he speculated without evidence that his legal troubles are the fault of Joe Biden and they are helping him in the Republican primaries. It's a shame to have to have gone through this for years and years and years. And now we'll see if we're going to get an honest verdict. We have our best poll numbers. We have the best everything despite this and maybe because of this, because the people of the United States, all of those people back there, but the people of the United States really get it. They get it better than anybody else. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed now. She's outside the courthouse in Manhattan. CNN's Kristen Holmes is also with us at 40 Wall Street, where former President Trump spoke this afternoon. Paula, Donald Trump's lawyers spoke in that courtroom behind you for more than two hours today. The most consequential part, however, might have been the few minutes when Donald Trump spoke in court. Tell us about that. That's right, a dramatic conclusion to this months-long case that has enraged Trump and that threatens his family business. As you noted, his lawyer, Chris Kyes, kicked off the day by presenting about two hours of closing arguments summarizing the theory of the case, which is they argue that this is a political pursuit, that their client never intended to defraud banks, and that these institutions benefited from their relationship with Trump. But then... After Kaiser's argument, Trump was granted permission by the judge to address the court for just a few minutes. Now, despite the judge previously saying that he did not want Trump to give a campaign speech, Trump launched attacks against the judge, the district attorney, and declared himself an innocent man. Now, predictably, this prompted a contentious exchange with the judge, where Trump said, quote, they don't want me here. Let's get rid of Trump. I've done a lot of great things. The judge interrupted and said, one minute, that's all I'm saying. 
Trump told the judge, you have your own agenda. I understand that. The judge then asked Trump's lawyer, Mr. Kais, please get your client under control. Trump said, Your Honor, look, I did nothing wrong. They should pay me for what we had to go through, what they've done to me reputationally and everything else. The judge then turned to Trump's lawyer and said, Mr. Kais, this could have been done differently and you would have had a lot more time. Mr. Trump, thank you. So look, Jake, while this is a legal proceeding, this is very personal to Trump and he often uses these proceedings to make political arguments. But I want to note, the Attorney General's office is now offering their closing statement, wrapping those up, and they made a really important point. They said, look, none of the Trump arguments addressed a key part of this case, which are those false financial statements that were off by billions of dollars and are at the heart of this case. Jake? Kristen, you were at Donald Trump's press conference after this. Did his team make any legitimate legal points? One interesting part of this is that I've been to several of these, and this was the first time, or at least one of the very few amount of times that he's actually taken questions from reporters. Usually, it is an airing of grievances. And I do want to note that this event, and I am an event on purpose, Trump really was turning it into part of the campaign trail. For what we saw too. So. Uh, uh, Kristen, I'm sorry, you're, the audio is, uh, is not working uh, on your feed right now, so I'm sorry about that. But let's bring in uh, CNN's Jamie Gangel and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, let's start with what's at stake here, because Donald Trump, can, he can say whatever he wants, but the Attorney General of New York is asking for him to pay $370 million and for him to lose his ability to do business in New York. How do you think the judge is ultimately going to rule? Well, Jake, I don't think there's too much mystery to this because the judge, as you said, already has found against Donald Trump and in favor of the attorney general on one of the seven counts in this case. And what's at stake here really is the ability of Donald Trump to do business, period, in the future. The AG is asking for an enormous monetary judgment here, up to $370 million. Even if the AG gets a fraction of that, that's a huge check. But really the bigger concern for Donald Trump here is the AG seeking the suspension of his business certificate, which would mean he cannot do business here in New York. It would vastly complicate his ability to do business anywhere else. It could mean quite literally the end of the Trump organization. Jamie, would Donald Trump have shown up in court today if the case weren't essentially about deciding the fate of his business empire and this image he has built for himself that has that has served him so well as this uh, master of the universe, this successful Manhattan businessman? Well, in fairness, we don't always know why he he shows up in court, but there is no question this one, as you say, is personal to him. This is about his business. It's about money. It's about the brand. And I think what was interesting is Donald Trump is not new to court as as a businessman. This isn't his first rodeo. And what we saw is actually very typical of him. He fights. He spins. He delays. He tries to exhaust his opponents. uh, And even when he loses, he says he has won. So I, I think what we saw here today, no question, was personal. And Ellie, help us fact check a few of the the claims Donald Trump made this afternoon. Uh, He says he was denied a a jury trial. Uh, what's, What's the deal there? What really happened? He didn't even ask, Jake. Now, it's debatable whether Donald Trump would have been entitled 
to a jury given the nature of this lawsuit. But Donald Trump's team absolutely could have argued, we want a jury, we're legally entitled to a jury, and then litigate it. They never did any such thing. The judge said right off the bat, this is gonna be me, the judge deciding it, and Trump and his team never contested that. So it's disingenuous to claim he was denied something that he never even asked for. He also claimed that he has already won at the Court of Appeals. Is, is that true? So that definitely caused some head scratching. I think if you're watching at home thinking, if he won at the Court of Appeals, how could we be on trial now? The fact is he did get a win at the Court of Appeals, but a narrow win. The Court of Appeals ruled that some of the claims in this case were too old and had to be removed from the case. That happens. Those claims were thrown out of the case. All the claims against Ivanka Trump were thrown out of the case, but everything that remained in the case is now the subject of the trial. So he did win, but only in a very limited fashion. Ellie Trump also claimed that Michael Cohen has, has taken back, has recanted all of his testimony. I don't remember yeah, that Yeah, that's happening. not, quite, not quite accurate. Michael Cohen on the stand was asked at one point, did Donald Trump ever tell you specifically to falsify these amounts? And what Michael Cohen said, and he's been consistent on this, is that's not how Donald Trump operated. He didn't give us explicit instructions. We understood the general marching order. So he didn't take everything back, and his testimony didn't completely backfire. Michael Cohen's certainly got some credibility issues, but it was an overstatement as to what happened with Michael Cohen. And Jamie, this is probably one of the clearest examples we've seen to date, of, and there have been a number of them, of Trump using his many, many legal problems uh, as his uh, campaign platform um, are there any signs that this strategy isn't working for him? It seems quite the opposite to be working for him. I mean, we see the numbers going up, as we've discussed. He sees this, Jake, as very effective. He shows up. He gives these speeches. He thinks it helps him with the voters. He thinks portraying himself as a victim helps him, I think, with fundraising, with uh, getting his base riled up. So I think that... You know, obviously he showed up today, as we discussed, because it's his business, but he thinks it is effective. And, and maybe the thing to point to is this. Donald Trump likes to brand. And what did we hear over and over today? That it is a witch hunt and that it is election interference. The fact that he keeps using those two phrases over and over, he thinks this helps him politically. Well, it certainly helps him with Republican primary voters. I don't know about the, right. the general election uh, voters. Uh, Ellie, in a normal fraud trial, as I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that in a normal fraud, fraud trial, there are victims, people who actually lost money. Um, as Mr. Trump pointed out in court today, the banks involved got all their money paid back, uh, even if he was, you know, he's he not granting the fact that he overinflated the, the value, but even if he had, they got all their money back does the fact that everyone was paid back, might that affect the judge's decision here? Well, it could, Jake. Some of the remaining claims do require what we call materiality, meaning did somebody actually rely on these misstatements and then lose money as a result? If we cut through all the bluster, this is one of Donald Trump's defense stronger points here. This is not your typical fraud case where somebody was ripped off, where somebody made a representation to investors and then the money was taken, or even in a bank case where someone made a false statement, got a bank loan, and then defaulted on it. And what Trump's team has argued is these are sophisticated, multi-billion dollar banks. They did their own diligence. They willingly made these loans. They got repaid and they got repaid with interest. Now, legally speaking, if there was still fraud, if the numbers were vastly inflated, that can still hold up on some of the counts, including the count that the judge has already ruled in Trump's, excuse me, in the AG's favor on. But that, I think, is the strongest line of defense in trying to perhaps bring down the amount of the damages here.
Yeah, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. As yeah. Trump today uses a New York courtroom uh, as a, a campaign platform, other Republican candidates are actually campaigning in Iowa, and they're closing messages with only four days to go before Monday's caucuses is next. Plus, what Governor Nikki Haley and Governor Ron DeSantis are saying after last night's CNN debate. Stay with us. Breaking news, the president's son, Hunter Biden, has just pleaded not guilty in a federal courtroom in California. Let's get straight to CNN's Evan Perez. He's outside court in Los Angeles. Evan, walk us through what just happened. Well, a lot less drama here today, uh, uh, Jake, uh, compared to what uh, Hunter was involved in yesterday on Capitol Hill. Uh, he walked in uh, quietly uh, just uh, about 15 minutes before the, the beginning of this, uh, of this proceeding. Uh, went through uh, some paperwork, seemed to be signing some of his paperwork. Uh, typically, they present him with bond paperwork, which allows him to leave this courtroom after he entered his plea. He formally entered his plea. He stood before the courtroom and entered his plea for all nine charges. Jake, he's facing here three felonies uh, among those nine for uh, evading taxes, uh, for failing to file, and for uh, filing false tax returns. According to prosecutors, uh, Hunter Biden made millions of dollars working for companies in Ukraine and China uh, and didn't pay his taxes for a period from 2016 to 2019. Uh, according to uh, prosecutors, he spent that money uh, uh, funding a, a lavish lifestyle from, uh, from exotic cars to exotic dancers. Uh, but now he's facing these charges here in Los Angeles, in addition, Jake, to uh, his other indictment, which uh, relates to his purchase of a firearm during the time that he was uh, prohibited from owning firearms. He's facing those charges in, uh, in Delaware. Now, uh, we're not sure how quickly this case is going to go to trial, Jake. Uh, obviously, all of this landing in the middle of the political season. His father, of course, running for re-election. Hunter Biden and his team uh, have said that the only reason why he's being prosecuted like this is because of Republican pressure on the Justice Department to go after him, Jake. Evan Bettis in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Moving on to our 2024 lead. Cue the music. Yeah, that's my jam. CNN's election music. Donald Trump might be in court, but his political rivals are out there in the, in the home stretch trying to make their final pitches to Iowa Republicans today with just four days to go until the very first contest of the election and hours after they faced off in the CNN debate. CNN's Jessica Dean is on the campaign trail in beautiful Des Moines. Uh, Jessica, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis uh, last night and today not shying away from attacking each other. No, they're certainly not, Jake. And what we're seeing, it's a continuum of what we've seen in this kind of unconventional GOP primary over the last year, which is two realities. You have the reality here on the ground where Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have been all over the state today attacking one another. And then you have the separate reality with the undisputed front runner, former President Donald Trump, in the New York, in that New York City courtroom dealing with that. And that's what continues to play out as the big question continues to swirl that will be answered on Monday. Will anyone emerge here as an alternative to Trump? In what has become a common split screen in this presidential primary, GOP frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, spent his day in a New York City courtroom as the other 2024 GOP candidates were back on the trail in Iowa. So get excited. Four days until caucus. You know, I'm a guy, I'm running on, on, on your issues and your family's issues and this country's issues. Uh, you know, I'm not running uh, for any other reason. Ron doesn't defeat Biden. 
Trump is head-to-head with Biden. On a good day, he might be up by two. In every one of those polls, I defeat Biden by double digits. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley clashing on the CNN debate stage Wednesday night, attacking one another on competency, character, and conservative convictions. If leadership's about getting things done, how did you blow through $150 million in your campaign? We went and saved our money. We made sure we spent it right because you have to understand it's not your money, it's other people's money, and you have to know how to handle it. If he can't handle the financial parts of a campaign, how's he going to handle the economy when it comes to the White House? I think here's the problem. You can take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but you can't take the United Nations out of the ambassador. We don't need another mealy mouth politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear just to try to get your vote, then to get in office and to do her donor's bidding. Trump continued his practice of not debating the other candidates, instead taking the stage alone on Fox News. I'm not going to have time for retribution. We're going to make this country so successful again. I'm not going to have time for retribution. DeSantis and Haley largely avoided sustained attacks on the former president. I think he was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies, but his way is not my way. If Trump is the nominee, it's going to be about January 6th, Legal issues, criminal trials, the Democrats and the media would love to run with that. All of this unfolding just hours after former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race, criticizing rivals who've refused to call out Trump. Anyone who is unwilling to say that he is unfit to be president of the United States is unfit themselves to be president of the United States. And Jake, there's one more additional factor that we are keeping an eye on as we get closer to Monday. Take a look around, you see the snow. That's not uncommon. It snows in Iowa in the winter. However, Iowa is set to have its coldest caucus day ever on Monday. It's the coldest day in January here in five years with wind chills up to negative 40. We know Iowans are hardy. They can get through a winter, no doubt, but it comes down to turnout and that can be a joke sometimes in covering politics, but it comes down to turnout, especially in caucuses. And will that factor in at all? We know that these candidates and these campaigns are working very hard to make sure they can get their voters uh, to those caucus sites on Monday night. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean in Des Moines for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, the dangerous trend of swatting. That's fake 911 calls generating a large police presence. One wrong step and you could get killed. Lately, several have involved elected officials. See the stepped-up efforts to get them to stop coming up. Plus, the strong, some would say false, genocide allegation today being waged against Israel as Israel is waging its war against Hamas in Gaza. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Topping our world lead for the very first time since the Genocide Convention was drawn up in 1948 after the Holocaust, the nation founded at least partly because of the Holocaust, Israel, is being tried and accused of genocide in the United Nations highest court, the International Court of Justice. South African officials are claiming that Israel's leadership are intent on destroying Palestinians in Gaza, committing genocide against them in Israel's retaliation for the atrocities committed on and since October 7th by Hamas, the government of the Palestinian people in Gaza. While U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who just wrapped up his Middle East trip, says South Africa's case is, quote, meritless and distracting, CNN's Melissa Bell reports for us from The Hague now as Israel prepares to defend itself on the world stage. Free, free Palestine! Passionate protests on the streets outside of court. Free, free Palestine! As inside, South Africa laid out the details of their case. Even an attack involving atrocity crimes can provide any justification for or defense to breaches to the convention. Israel has denied all accusations, calling the case a, quote, blood libel. South Africa is accusing Israel of breaching the 1948 Genocide Convention through its military response to the Hamas attack, which it says has killed more than 23,000 people. At least 200 times it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. Israeli soldiers in but South Africa is also accusing Israeli leaders of making no distinction between Hamas and the civilians of Gaza. The genocidal intent behind these statements is not ambiguous to the Israeli soldiers on the ground. Indeed, it is directing their actions and objectives. These are the soldiers repeating the inciting words of their prime minister. The moment welcomed by international groups in support of the Palestinian people, with many noting the importance of Israel's presence too, there to defend its response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th that killed at least 1,200 people. The fact that they're here, that they're represented, and that they're presenting their formal response to South Africa's case is significant and suggests that they attach legitimacy to the court. Israel will be making its case here on Friday, but just after the South African delegation had finished, a spokesman for Israel's foreign ministry dismissed their claims as groundless and false, accusing them of being the representatives of Hamas in court. An effective realization. But South Africa's goal, a call for the world court to order Israel to stop the war. The consequences of not indicating clear and particularized specific provisional measures would, we fear, be very grave indeed for the Palestinians in Gaza who remain at real risk of further genocidal acts. 
We will hear tomorrow morning, Jake, uh, the specifics of Israeli's defense when Israeli lawyers take the stand here at The Hague. But already we've had a taste of some of the indignation uh, that we're likely to hear from their side, from the mouth of Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking in live televised address tonight, uh, speaking of South Africa's hypocrisy that he said stank to the high heavens. This was at a time when Israel was fighting a genocide, uh, a moment when Israel was being accused of genocide. That's something you're likely to hear more of tomorrow, as well uh, the idea that this is self-defense. Still, we've been speaking to the South African delegation tonight. They believe that whatever the international jurisprudence that is established here by the court, whatever its final decision on those provisional measures or on the broader question of genocidal acts, South Africa believes uh, that they have done something important here today by forcing Israel to explain itself on the specifics of what and how it is going about that campaign inside the Gaza Strip. Jake. All right, Melissa Bell at The Hague, thanks so much. As the intense strikes in Gaza continue, getting food and aid inside Gaza to innocent Palestinians has become an incredibly difficult task. Cindy McCain, the widow of the late Senator John McCain and the head of the World Food Program, helps lead one major effort. She's going to join me right after the break. Now to Gaza and our world lead, where, quote, nearly insurmountable challenges uh, face aid workers, according to the World Health Organization. The agency said it recently canceled six planned missions to northern Gaza because requests for a safe passage were simply rejected. Just yesterday, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, part of the International Red Cross, said four of its medics were killed when an Israeli airstrike hit their ambulance in central Gaza. Israel's military has not commented. All this as hunger and disease grip the Gaza, nearing the 100th day of war. The executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, Cindy McCain, uh, joins us now. Cindy, good to see you as always. So a new analysis from the integrated food security phase classification shows a quarter of Gaza's population of roughly two million, a quarter, face the highest possible level of food insecurity. That's, that's called uh, catastrophic hunger. How unusual is this rapid acceleration to that status and the sheer scale of, of hunger and food insecurity in Gaza? Well, what we're looking at right now, and you, you reflect the numbers very accurately, is uh, famine. Uh, the, the, the lack of food, the inability to obtain quality food, all the things that, that produce the kind of situation that, that the people of Gaza are in right now is exactly what's happening. We are looking at famine. The only way that we can prevent this is by a ceasefire, number one, and number two, uh, safe and unfettered access in for our trucks and for our people to be able to feed not just those people that are in the, the shelters but people that are within the smaller communities as well uh, we've got to get in there we have to people are starving to death and a lot of them are children unfortunately how difficult if not impossible is it to get an aid truck with medical supplies and, and food and water into gaza today well, it's a challenge. Although we now have an extra gate open, Karim Shalom is open. It's still it's still a complicated process. And so on some days, it just simply doesn't work. We need more than Rafa Gate and Karim Shalom to be able to get in. We need at least two more. We need to talk about opening a port. Everything that we that we need as, as humanitarians to be able to feed uh, the, the population of Gaza is what we need to be able to do. 
most importantly is the ceasefire though we that's that's what's going to enable us to get in there in a more in a in a uh, in a way that's just is more bulk more more people more trucks more food etc uh, right now where it's just a dribble and although we've got more trucks than we had before it's still not enough how much are, are, is the world food program speaking directly with the government of israel i know israel says they can't do a ceasefire because Hamas poses an existential mm-hmm. threat to the Israeli people. Um, is, there, is there any talk even about like a temporary pause just so some of these trucks and aid can get in and, and maybe some people, some refugees, if they're allowed to, get out? Uh, yes. No, I mean, we have been talking to the Israeli government, as have, as you know, every world leader on the planet right now has been talking to them as well. Um, it, it's, it's the kind of situation when we start using the word famine, uh, with regards to what's going on in Gaza, this is something that is catastrophic. It's not just a lack of food. It then becomes an inability to regain what children have lost in all of this is 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 major, major impacts to their brains, et cetera. It, this is such a tragic situation. And, and uh, again, a ceasefire, unfettered access, safe access for our for our drivers and for our people and also uh the ability to make sure that they're not uh, that they are deconflicted in the process france and and jordan have uh, been able to airdrop <clears throat> to airdrop um tons of medical mm-hmm. aid is that something that could be done with food as well has the world food program looked into that you know i i doubt that that much has been dropped in there we we're talking about a very condensed population to drop aid in could be could be harmful to the people on the ground. You know, WFP has been doing this for 60 years. We know what we're doing. We know what works. And so right now for us and for what we do, trucks are the only way to get help in there right now. What is the best way for people watching at home to help? Well, of course, you know, the usual the usual thing is, of course, give money to give money to WFP. Uh, we simply right now don't have the kind of money that we need. Uh, the world has been overloaded with crises uh, within the last year or two years. And so I, a lot of countries are, are kind of kind of backed off a bit. So what I'm telling everyone I speak to, and of course I'm going to Davos this weekend to reiterate all this, is that we need everybody in this. We need every country, every world leader, everybody to to help us make sure that we can do the best that we can to save uh, those people who are suffering tragically in Gaza right now. And we should just underline for anybody watching, Cindy, I know you're a strong supporter of Israel and I know you're horrified by what happened on October yeah. 7th, but this, this isn't about that. This yeah. is about the well, in, innocent people uh, of Gaza. Right, right. And it, it's, about, it's, it's about the innocent people, not just in Gaza, but around the world. There are other major crises going on right now, and I'll use Sudan as a perfect example of that. Uh, we that's why we're talking about raising awareness, making sure that we can can gather more money. Of course, the immediate crisis for all of this is Gaza. But I can't forget it's the other countries as well as Gaza that keep me awake at night. Yeah. And, and the, you, the people that are suffering there. And you've been here to talk about those before October 7th. And we'll keep having you back and keep bringing attention to this. Cindy McCain, thank you for the work you do. Thank appreciate you. it. Coming up, what's being done to crack down on swatting? Why is it so difficult for authorities to track down who is behind these hoax calls leading to dangerous police responses to places where nothing bad is going on as more incidents are reported involving public officials? 
International lead police in New York are investigating a bomb threat made at the home of the judge presiding over Trump's civil fraud case. The threat made just hours before closing arguments were set to begin today. This comes after law enforcement officials in D.C. say a federal judge in Trump's election case was the victim of an apparent swatting incident on Sunday when police responded to a report of a shooting at her home only to determine there was not a shooting at their home when they arrived. CNN's Renee Marsh looks at the alarming rise in swatting incidents targeting public officials. He claimed that uh, I had shot my wife. Ohio's Attorney General Dave Yost. They had uh, uh, shot uh, their spouse and, uh, and that they had somebody else tied up. And Georgia Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. Both police say targets of a dangerous trend on the rise called swatting. It's a hoax where the caller makes a panicked false report to 911 about a violent crime in progress at their target's home, triggering a large police response with armed officers, like the one Georgia State Senator Clint Dixon experienced when he says he was swatted on Christmas Day. I went to the front door and opened the door and answered the door um, and was met by six officers that were uh, uh, carrying ARs. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene says she was targeted the same day. The police report says the caller told an emergency dispatcher he shot his girlfriend and Greene's home was the scene of the crime. The intent is to harass the individual who's the subject of the swatting call, but there are serious consequences potentially. Officers responding very quickly to the scene, uh, thinking that there's some major crime in progress, which puts the person who is the subject of the swatting uh, at risk. In a divisive and toxic political environment, both Republican and Democratic political figures seem to be increasingly the targets, many of them viewed by Trump supporters as political opponents. This Sunday, D.C. police responded to a 911 call for a shooting at the home of the federal judge in Donald Trump's election interference case, Tanya Chutnik. The police report says once units arrived, they realized the judge was not injured and there was no one in her home. Last month, Jack Smith, the Justice Department special counsel overseeing two federal cases against Donald Trump, was swatted, a law enforcement source tells CNN. So was Maine Secretary of State after she ruled Trump ineligible to appear on the state's ballot. And just hours before Thursday's closing arguments, a bomb threat at the home of the judge presiding over Trump's civil trial. These threats of violence are unacceptable. They threaten the fabric of our democracy. In May, the FBI set up a database to track swatting cases for the first time. Since then, the agency says it has received more than 500 reports. But finding the perpetrators who often mask their caller ID data can be difficult, and that's why political figures who have fallen victim to the crime are urging Congress to act. If there was, you know, a federal law on the books, given that this person is calling from another state, that, you know, you'd have that uh, jurisdiction and, and hopefully be able to apprehend those folks more effectively. As elections draw near, states are doing what Congress has not. Last year, Ohio passed a law making swatting a felony, and Georgia has drafted similar legislation. Well, Jake, it's not just high-profile political figures falling victim to swatting. It runs the gamut from Jewish and other religious institutions, government buildings, schools, to election workers and members of the military. So law enforcement, law enforcement officials are stressing that this is a dangerous hoax, and they point to a 28-year-old man in Wichita, Kansas, who was actually killed after someone called in a fake 911 emergency about a hostage situation at his home. Jake?
Renee Morris, thanks so much. Let's bring in the Republican, former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia and CNN political commentator uh, Jeff Duncan. Uh, Jeff, let's get your reaction because this is disturbing and dangerous. It's happening uh, not just to Democrats, not just to judges, not just to prosecutors, not just to Republicans. It's happening all over the map. Yeah, this is an America problem. And uh, for me, it, it feels like it's a direct result of, of uh, just the unfortunate feverish pitch that follows politics every which way. I mean, we watched this play out even before the 2020 election. It just seemed like you know, the whole golden rule of love your neighbor has just turned into just something of, you know, punch your neighbor. Um, and it's, it's a form of intimidation. And I, quite honestly, when you're trying to raise a family in the public eye, it is intimidating for your wife to call you and tell you that she just received a death threat. You know firsthand what this is like. You received threats um, for the 2020, for saying that the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. Basically, you received death threats for stating facts, facts affirmed by the governor, facts affirmed by the secretary of state, facts affirmed by election boards, Republican all. Uh, how, how did it affect you and your family? Yeah, you know, the part that really kind of crawled under our skin was how coordinated it all felt, right? There would be a tweet or a statement made by Donald Trump uh, it would go out and within minutes, uh, either I'd get a call or calls or my wife would get a call and it would be a death threat or some other sort of just extremely intimidating, you know, uh, message. And, and the point was you couldn't track the call. We'd turn it over to the GBI, uh, the language that they used, the tone and tenor. I mean, it just felt really coordinated. It almost felt like a professional death threat. How, how is it that they can't track the call? It didn't used to be that way, right? I mean, you and I are old enough to remember a time when like every call was traceable. Yeah, I think it's just because it's coordinated, it's planned, right? Either there's just a group of individuals that sit, out, sit outside uh, as, as a rogue element, and it's scary, right? It's scary in that who knows when it's actually gonna be for real. But you know, as you watch this play out, Gabe Sterling and I had this conversation a number of times. Election official of Georgia. Yeah, yeah. And, and Gabe and I, you know, he was receiving similar issues and, and threats that I was. And, and same with, with Brad Raffensperger, is when, when January 6th happened, I mean, certainly it was shocking and it was a surprise to us all, but you could, you could see the math happening. You could see this feverish pitch just building and building and building to where somebody, uh, groups of individuals, thousands, tens of thousands of folks showed up in, in just complete hate. And there's this normalization of violence or the threat of violence. Um, are you worried about it getting even worse in 2024? Yeah, as I watch this election cycle of 2024 starting to play out, I mean, once again, Donald Trump's key, you know, resource that he uses is sowing uh, seeds of doubt and chaos. And he, you continue to pick up even today elements that he leaves that, you know, the election could be rigged or, you know, there would be chaos if, if he's found guilty or, you know, just continues to leave those doubts out there to almost give air cover, not almost, but to actually give air cover uh, to those individuals that would even think that this would, would be something that they should do. Yeah, he does so in a very specific way. Listen to Donald Trump on Tuesday. Following his court appearance in the January 6th case, he offered this warning if he loses the election while being prosecuted. I think they feel this is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. That'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. Now, a reporter asked if he would rule out violence by his supporters, and he walked away without answering. I, I wouldn't exactly say that he was, uh, he's, he's condemned it strongly when he was asked about it last night in that town hall on Fox about political violence. Um, 
What's your take on his use of political violence? You could call it a dog whistle, but it's really full lights and sirens. He's telling you exactly what he's thinking. He's sowing that extreme seed and, and putting that, that line in the sand. And this is what, I've said this often, the most important thing about a president is it's not so much the tax policies that affect our day-to-day -day lives or how safe our streets are, or how good our kids' schools are. It's about setting the tone and temper temperament for the country. And this country is starved for a leader that can put out there a, a whole new culture change. This would be like a CEO, a new CEO coming in where there's a culture issue. We need a new culture in this country. All right, Jeff Duncan, thank you so much for being here. Only four days until the Iowa caucuses. Next, former Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. He's still in the race. What does he see going into Monday? Who might he endorse if he chooses to bow out? Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the Lead on Jake Tapper. Moments ago, the president's son, Hunter Biden, pleaded not guilty in a federal case against him where he's accused of not paying more than a million dollars in taxes. The court appearance as Republicans keep trying to connect Hunter's financial dealings to his dad, the president. Plus, two football titans calling it quits. After 24 seasons and six Super Bowl titles, Bill Belichick says goodbye to the New England Patriots. And after 17 seasons and six national titles, Nick Saban retires as Alabama's head coach. We're going to talk about it with Bob Costas, a legend in his own right. And leading this hour, the 2024 race is closing in and we're down to just four days before the Iowa caucuses. But instead of being in Iowa, the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, was in court using his civil fraud case to grandstand before the judge set him down. And fresh off last night's CNN debate today, and Ambassador Nikki Haley and Governor Ron DeSantis campaigned in Iowa, as did former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who's trying to sway any possible votes their way. And joining us now, Republican presidential candidate uh, Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas. Governor Hutchinson, thanks for joining us. So uh, I want to get your response to something Donald Trump just said outside the courtroom in his civil fraud trial against him. Take a listen. My legal issues, every one of them, everyone, civil, and the criminal ones are all set up by Joe Biden, crooked Joe Biden. This is something that's never happened in this country. Even the civil ones, this is civil, they're set up by Biden. Uh, every single, just about, case that I'm involved in is set up by Biden. They're doing it for election interference. Now, obviously, there is zero evidence that President Biden had anything to do with the civil suits or the prosecutions by the federal government, et cetera. But you're, you're a former federal prosecutor. Uh, what's your response when you hear President uh, tr uh, Trump say that? Well, it's offensive, it's wrong. And once again, he's misleading his supporters and uh, giving them anger at our system of justice when there's not any uh, justification for this particular case. Now, sure, there's complaints about uh, one or more of the cases that they shouldn't have been brought. Uh, but in terms of this one, it's a civil fraud case. No connection with uh, the president of the United States. Uh, and then here you have a businessman accused and found guilty 
of dealing dishonestly in his business services. Let me tell you, that would disqualify most candidates for the presidency. You've got that compounded by a jury uh, of the peers uh, finding in a civil case that he committed sexual abuse. You've got four criminal cases that are pending against him. All of this should be a warning sign that uh, this is a person of poor character, and that should have been answered very clearly last night on the debate, that uh, he, his character does not justify election to the presidency of the United States. Well, let's get to that, because um, when Chris Christie, uh, the former New Jersey governor, dropped out of the race uh, yesterday, one of the things he said was that character is the most important issue. And he suggested that one of the reasons he ran is because he was afraid uh, other Republican uh, presidential candidates wouldn't be willing to criticize Trump and, and point out, in his view, his lack of character. Uh, I asked Governor Haley and Governor DeSantis about that. Take a listen. Do you believe Donald Trump has the character to be president again? I agree with a lot of his policies, but his way is not my way. I don't have vengeance. I don't have vendettas. I don't take things personally. For me, it's very much about no drama, no whining, and getting results and getting them done. So I don't think that President Trump is the right president to go forward. I appreciated what President Trump did, but let's just be honest. He said he was going to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. He did not deliver that. He said he was going to drain the swamp. He did not deliver that. Governor Haley also said that the next president needs to have moral clarity. Uh, she suggested that uh, President Trump uh, didn't, although she didn't state it outright. What, what was your response when you, when you heard their answers? <laughs> that the answer is a simple no. Uh, that's not complicated. It doesn't have to be explained. It's a no. He doesn't have the character to justify being president of the United States. It's not the character that we want to see uh, whenever he misleads his supporters. Uh, whenever he has been mishandling uh, our classified, our national secrets, uh, whenever you look at the fact that uh, he brought people to Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, the result was an attack on the Capitol. And most importantly, he says today that those were patriotic acts. He's undermined the rule of law. He's undermined law enforcement. And that was an attack on Congress as well. So none of that reflects the character of someone we want to lead our nation. That should be a simple answer last night, just like the one uh, that you ask on uh, whether uh, you believe with his constitutional views or not. The simple answer is no. The um, latest Iowa poll, uh, the Iowa caucus in four days, uh, has you at less than 1% support. Obviously, polls are not votes. Um, but what percentage of the vote do you think you need to win on Monday in Iowa uh, in order to keep your campaign going? Well, Jake, everybody has counted me out of this race, and yet I believe it's nine candidates have dropped out. We're still in there, and uh, we have an opportunity. Uh, there's always a surprise in Iowa. I want to be that surprise, and the key is just beating expectations. And as you defined it, those expectations are low, but we're going through uh, 30 different cities leading up to the caucus. It's our return to normal tour. Uh, I'm you know, going to be uh, traveling in the snow today for another uh, meeting up in Decorah, uh, Iowa. And so uh, I believe that we can beat expectations here. And the fact that uh, now I'm the only candidate in this race that talks about the experience of securing the border, the only candidate that actually has experience in dealing with fentanyl and the opioid abuses, 
uh, in terms of my responsibilities uh, as head of the DEA. So I bring that experience, but I also am the only one in this race that has not promised a pardon during this campaign to Donald Trump. And I think that distinguishes me. It doesn't get me everybody's vote, but there is an avenue there for people who believe that we're headed for real serious trouble next year if Donald Trump is a nominee because it could bring our party down and we could lose in 2024. The, um, when Chris Christie uh, dropped out of the race yesterday, he didn't endorse uh, anyone. He didn't endorse you. He didn't in- endorse DeSantis. He didn't endorse Haley. Um, what was your response to his dropping out? And if you do not end up going the distance, will you endorse either DeSantis or Haley? Well, we're going to take that a day at a time. And any candidate that is quality and realistic evaluates the status of the campaign every day. And uh, my next evaluation will be after the Iowa caucus. Uh, I believe I'm going to exceed expectation. We've already got a flight booked to uh, New Hampshire and a day of campaigning there on the 17th. And so we're ready to go. But I'll evaluate it. And, uh, you know, if, if Iowa tells me, Uh, You don't have a path here and insufficient support. Uh, We'll look at it as to whether I endorsed another candidate. uh, That day remains to be seen. Former Governor Asa Hutchinson, thank you so much and good luck to you. Let's talk about all this. Asa Hutchinson hanging in the race. Donald Trump using his legal problems to push his campaign. How all of this might weigh on Republican voters in Iowa who in four days will determine the direction of this race. Our panel is going to break it all down after this quick break. We are back with our 2024 lead. We're just four days away from the first contest of the presidential election. Iowa voters are preparing to caucus on Monday. Forget the polls, forget the pundits. It's all up to them. So let's talk about what we think they might do. Doug, Mm -hmm. do you believe what you just heard from former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson about why he's staying in the race for the Iowa caucuses? Do you think what he's saying is justified or do you think he should bow out? Well, I think a whole lot of what he said was, was true. Um, about what, where he's diagnosed the problems. But the reality is, if Chris Christie felt that he had to get out of the race, Chris Christie had, depending on the poll, 8 to 10 to 12 times the support that Asa Hutchinson did. Look, he was a good governor for Arkansas. He's a good man. But if he wants to influence what's going to happen, he should get out and he should back somebody, as Chris Christie should have last night. Are you surprised that so few, I'm trying to think of the people who have dropped out, how many of them have endorsed anybody? And I actually can't think of anybody. Have any of them gone on? To no. Will no. Hurd is doing work for, is helping Nikki Haley, mm-hmm. but that's the only one I can think of. Well, yeah, because they still think Donald Trump might mm-hmm. win, and they don't want to necessarily say they're supporting Donald Trump, but they surely don't want to put their weight on the scale for DeSantis and Haley in the event Donald Trump becomes a nominee and, God forbid, he becomes the president, they want a cabinet position or still want life in the Republican Party. Or they don't want the ire focused on them if they had gone in a different direction. Think of how many Republican members of Congress and senators haven't made endorsements, despite the fact that Trump has a massive lead in in most of the polling. I also wonder, do they feel like they have any influence in the party at this point? Like a Tim Scott, I think when he dropped out of the race, so many people were expecting him to endorse someone. I was surprised he didn't endorse Donald Trump as soon as he dropped out. And he's kind of just disappeared like 
where is Tim Scott um, other than in the Senate? So I wonder if they feel like they even have any influence in this party right now and they just assume it's Donald Trump all the way. It's just unusual, right? It I mean, really usually is. they'd be able to drop out. Usually at least a chunk of them will right. endorse somebody. Right. Um, Doug, right before he dropped out, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was caught on a hot mic uh, talking about DeSantis and Haley. Take a listen. She's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. DeSantis called me. Petrified that I would... And then I got cut off. I assume that he's saying DeSantis was petrified that he was that Christie was going to endorse Haley because that's the only thing that DeSantis could possibly be petrified about when it comes to Chris Christie. Um, what, what do you think? You've you've interviewed Chris Christie dozens of times, if not more than that. Chris sure. Christie runs to cameras with the enthusiasm uh, uh, as the Kool Aid Man. And we've never heard of a hot mic moment for Chris Christie. This was not a mistake. Chris Christie doesn't make Oh, you think it's mistakes. purposeful? Absolutely. We know that he was, we know now that he didn't endorse anybody. So he takes two shots, one at DeSantis, one at Haley before he gives his speech. And then his speech is, I'm pure and virtuous. Everybody else is yeah. terrible. Yeah. And well, I, we should note that um, Ron DeSantis tweeted, I agree with Chris Christie, Nikki Haley's going to get smoked. So he at least, at least took part of it. Yeah, I bet he was glad that conversation got cut off so we didn't hear the rest of the sentence. Um, look, Chris Christie is a trash talker. I'm not surprised. Like that's He's from Jersey. He's man. from Jersey, yeah. yeah. I wasn't surprised that that's what he was saying. I mean, it's interesting. I thought Chris, I do not agree with Chris Christie on mostly anything policy-related, but I thought his speech was very, very strong and important, and he didn't just call out um, the candidates. He called out people up and down his party in the House and the Senate for siding with Donald Trump, calling people hostages uh, from January 6th. I thought it was important and strong. And I hope he continues to do it. I hope Asa Hutchinson, in the race, out of the race, continues to hold the feet to the fire and making sure people are um, taking Donald Trump to task. I nodded along with a lot of what Chris Christie said um, last night. But the reality is, what he did in his speech was he identified a lot of what the very obvious problems are. I didn't hear one offer of what a solution might be. And I think that's part of... Uh, where the Republicans find themselves. Yeah. They don't know how to go forward if they can't find the solutions. The problems are easy to diagnose if you're willing to do so. Christie's been a truth teller for sure, yeah. but he hasn't been able to actually diagnose what some of those solutions would be. Um, well, I mean, Republican leaders and Fox and others not lying would be a good start. I mean, like not providing Donald Trump a safe space to repeat his lies so he can avoid a debate. I mean, these are some ideas. But I guess it, my question, I, I hear what you're saying, Doug, because I was listening to the speech and I was like, OK, but Christy, they're not voting for you. So you've trashed everybody in that speech. So who is the candidate that is still in the race? He, he was trying to get Nikki Haley and DeSantis to be honest, potentially at the debate you moderated last night, but we see they are not. So where do voters go if they aren't going to get to vote? For I want to play some. No labels. I want to play some. I want to play some sound of uh, Haley and DeSantis, um, who spent more time attacking each other than they did the front runner. Take a listen. We don't need another mealy mouth politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear. He's upset about the fact that his his campaign is exploding. Every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. What'd you think? Uh, th this is what we've seen 
um, all campaign long is Donald Trump, he's not been at these debates. He's not really talked about. They've sharpened some of their rhetoric around him. But this has been the uh, Ron versus Nikki show or the you know Ron versus Chris show or Vivek and all of this. This is how they've campaigned. And it's why we haven't seen significant movement in the numbers because they've reinforced Donald Trump's messaging from his first indictment on. It's very hard for Republicans to find a place to go if the own, pe- the, the own people who are running against Donald Trump won't give them that place. Yeah, Ashley, I want to get your comments um, about the remarks made by the First Lady, Dr. Jill Bar- Biden, uh, on the investigation by House Republicans into her son, uh, Hunter Biden. Take a listen. I think what they are doing to Hunter is cruel. And I'm really proud of um, how Hunter has rebuilt his life uh, after addiction. You know, I'm, I love my son, and it's had... It's hurt my grandchildren. She's not spoken much uh, about this. Um, yeah. Why do you think now? Well, yesterday was yeah. pretty iconic television. Um, watching him walk in and say, if you have questions for me, ask me. I am here. And then when they continued the charade and, you know, when you get Nancy May saying white privilege, you know you've turned a page uh, uh, in, the, in the record book. So um, I, she's been consistent. Well, the family has been consistent in supporting Hunter Biden and his journey for recovery, and I don't think they're going to change. Ashley Allison, Doug, hi. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. For 96 long days, their loved ones have been held by the terrorist group Hamas. Their families have been begging for the world to listen, to do something, anything to help. The father of one hostage will join me right after this break. Today, relatives of hostages held by Hamas gathered near a border fence to try to shout messages to their loved ones still trapped in Gaza. The Israeli government believes that Hamas is holding 107 hostages still thought to be alive from the October 7th attack. Several of them are American. Joining us now is Shlomi Berger. He's the father of 19-year-old Agam Berger. We should note, as difficult as this is to see and to share, Hamas propaganda footage did include an image of Agam. That's her before she was kidnapped on the left and after on the right. It's important to see the treatment by Hamas of this 19-year-old girl who's now been in captivity for 96 days. Shlomi, I I cannot imagine what this is like for you and your family. I have a young daughter, 16-year-old daughter, it would just be absolute torture. How, how are you and your family able to, to cope during this agonizing wait for her return? In, uh, in Israel now, it's midnight. For us, midnight doesn't mean anything because we don't go to sleep about 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning every day, wake up all the night, and um, I don't know where to start, I wanted to tell you. Um, I don't know where is my daughter. I have no idea, no, I have no idea about her physical or emotional state. It is, extremely, it is extremely difficult as a father to feel helpless and not have any way to have to know where is my daughter. We know Hamas use sexual violence against women, young women and old women. She's a young woman. And as a father, I can 
can bear the thought she is in the hand of this these monsters I, I have more three more children Agam has a, a twin sister and another two one another sister another brother the family is third apart my kids you see them walking around in the house they know that don't know what to do with themselves all day some of them go to school but i know they they just go over there they don't yeah get I, anything in their head what is it like it's, for you and your family to see the Israeli government on trial before the International Court of Justice for alleged genocide while Hamas continues to hold your daughter and, and others captive. What, what is that like? Uh, as we said in Israel, the, the world went crazy. I think people don't understand or don't want to understand what happened here. There's been a second Holocaust in Israel. We have 136 kidnapped people inside Gaza, 400 dead. How can people talk about crimes when this is the situation in Israel? Are I you, don't understand it. Are you? Things happen all the world. Nobody speak on them. Yeah. Because why? Because we are Jews. I don't know what's happening here. It's unacceptable for me. People are talking about crimes when the more, most moral army in the world handle with the most uh, sophisticated, uh, not sophisticated, the most. Um, uh, horrible place to, to, to war to in, in Gaza. Yeah. It's it's a terrible place to, to, to make war in uh, inside houses. We try to keep uh, the citizens and they talk about us as uh, crime wars. I, I don't understand it. It's it's I can't accept this. I have I've talked to other families of um, hostages who have expressed frustration with Prime Minister Netanyahu focusing more on attacking Gaza, attacking Hamas in Gaza, and being more focused on that than on rescuing the hostages. How, how do you feel? I'm not a diplomat. I'm not an army man. I don't know what is the right thing to do. And I don't, they don't want to be in my place, and I don't to, want to be in their place um, when they need to uh, when they need to to make an exception what will they do get to war not get to war this is this is a crazy crazy situation i know one thing uh, i don't want to speak about netanyahu and the, the policy because i don't understand in policy i know my daughter is over there 100 days in Sunday, and I think, except of except Netanyahu, the U.S. the USA government can do many things to help us. 
the government helps us, but there is another few things she can do. And the, the most important thing that uh, the USA, the USA uh, can do is make pressure on Qatar. Qatar is the founder of Hamas. They gave, they gave him money. The money, instead of building schools and take care of the population, we saw what, what they do with the money. So I want to say, make pressure on, on Qatar. Yeah. Qatar is the player here. It's the most important player. They can stop everything. They can make Hamas. Stop, stop the situation. Bring back, bring back the hostages. Yeah, we want a gun back. And everything can make. It's it's. This is the most important thing I can say about this. Look at this girl. Yeah, we're looking she at her right now. She loves play the violin. Yeah. She loves traveling the world. She's at the age to go to. Uh, you know. Um, college this is a college girl college girl Shlomi Berger 100 days it's 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 not fair it's awful um I cannot imagine what you're going through um but we're going to continue we're going to continue to cover the hostages until they're returned um Agam is beautiful and I, I and I'm sure brilliant and Next, when she's back with you, please come back and talk to us um, when she's back in your arms. Um, thank you so much for talking to us today. I know it's not easy to do. Thank you. I appreciate it that you give me a stage to speak. And with your help, we will make it. We need you to help us to finish these horrible things that's happening here. Yep. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. In our law and justice lead today, just over an hour ago, Hunter Biden, the president's son, pleaded not guilty to nine counts of tax evasion in California federal court. Here he is uh, seen leaving court in an SUV. Prosecutors say Hunter Biden owed $1.4 million to the government from 2016 through 2019. He didn't pay it. Instead, he was using supporting a lavish lifestyle. A judge set a trial date for this June. As House Republicans try to connect President Biden's son's financial dealings to President Biden, this week the House Oversight Committee is interviewing more of Hunter Biden's business associates behind closed doors, including a New York art dealer on Tuesday. And after eight of these interviews, the committee has only released two transcripts, despite pledges of transparency from the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, including last month, right, right here on The Lead. We've been transparent. Every deposition in the history of, of America has been done in closed doors, but we released the transcript. We're still waiting for all of the transcripts to be released. Let's bring in CNN Capitol Hill reporter Annie Greer. So, Annie, Hunter Biden's lawyers have said they don't want to do this private testimony behind closed doors, as is normally done. Um, they want to just do public testimony, they say, because they say... House Republicans will leak damaging quotes out of context, uh, and that just wouldn't be fair. Now, Republican Chairman uh, Comer says they would never do such a thing. Um, what's the reality? The reality, Jake, is that Comer's policy of what transcripts he releases and what he holds on to is not consistent. Of, of the eight 
trans interviews that the Oversight Committee has done as part of its investigation into the Biden family, they've only released two of them. The rest have just been selective leaks, which is very different. They have leaked it out. There's been some statements and summaries of some of the interviews that have occurred, which is very different, though, than releasing the whole transcript in full for, every, for you and I to go through. And this is something that Democrats made a huge issue about in the hearing yesterday. Take a listen to some of what they had to say. Why don't we just give the people the transcribed interviews? We talk about transparency and accountability. That's the dominant theme of this committee. Isn't that something we can agree to? If it is uh, generally the practice of a, an investigator to withhold all of the transcripts during the investigative phase, um, would that normally also include releasing two of them? Honestly, we released those two transcripts because you had misrepresented so much what Devin Archer said. So Democrats raised that yesterday because that's part of the argument, as you mentioned, why Hunter would not sit for a closed door deposition. That's how we got to where we are now, which is Republicans holding Hunter in contempt. And Hunter and his team have maintained, look, I will come in and talk publicly. Just the way that you have handled transcripts makes me nervous about what could go on behind closed doors and how that information could potentially be manipulated. You said you, you referred to leaks and statements going to, I assume that's going to like right wing media. Like who, who, I, I didn't see anything. I mean, we would, I'm sure, report stuff. In the, who, who did they go to? Who did they leak to? Um, you know, the statements are made. General, uh, generally to a lot of the press. And the, but the bigger issue is that Comer's going on air and talking about these interviews without the press getting a chance to look at oh, the, full, the full transcript. And look, Comer said he's going to release all of these transcripts. And there is precedent for committees to wait until the end of sure. their investigation. I mean, look, the January 6th committee, they right. waited till the end of their probe to release all the transcripts at once. The issue, though, is the inconsistency of it, choosing to release some transcript right away and hold on to others. Because you and I both know the stakes of this investigation is extremely high. And right now, it's, it's fallen short. Republicans have not proven that the president has done anything wrong. And so when Comer's out there preaching transparency to you and others, you know, the question is why he's, not, why he's not practicing that in the way that he's releasing his transcripts and what are they hearing from all these witnesses? Yeah, and he, if he's going to talk about the, what the content of the interviews, they should just release the transcripts. That makes sense. Uh, Andy Greer, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is a member of the House Oversight Committee, Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. Uh, Congressman, the, the January 6th committee, as Andy just pointed out, um, didn't immediately release all the transcripts. Um, so if Chairman Comer does have a plan to ultimately release all of the transcripts at the end of the investigation, would that be acceptable to you? Well, not the way that he's gone about it. The January 6th committee also did not talk about uh, what the different witnesses said. And the problem that Hunter Biden has identified is twofold. One, they are selectively releasing transcripts. So the notion of doing an investigation and keeping everything private has been thrown out the window by their own actions. Devin Archer is their most important witness, according to Jim Jordan, and his transcript is now public. So what is the actual rationale for not releasing the remaining ones? And then the other problem is that they consistently misrepresent what the witnesses say <clears throat> excuse me, in their closed door depositions. They did it with Devin Archer, and now the media and every, all the public ha has been able to see how much they lied and misled uh, the American public about what Devin Archer said. And Hunter Biden's point is, listen, I don't want you to control 
what you release and what you say about what I said. I want to speak directly to the American people. If you want to do deposition style in public, do it deposition style. If you have all these questions and documents, do it in a public hearing. But I do not want you to twist my words, to cherry pick, and to mislead the narrative to the American public. I want to answer your questions, your allegations, directly to the American public. And he's perfectly justified in insisting on doing that because James Comer offered him to do that and because of the bad faith that uh, the chairman and the Republicans have operated in. What, what do you make of Hunter's chaotic stunt uh, at the House Oversight Committee hearing yesterday? For people who don't know, uh, it was supposed to be, I think, a vote on whether or not to hold him in contempt of Congress. Uh, and he showed up and he, he basically uh, underlined the lie of where's Hunter because there he is. Um, doesn't this strategy run risks, though? I mean, it made the controversy surrounding him worse for Democrats and President Biden in some way because it, it just made it a bigger story and more of a circus instead of, you know, President Biden, the news about President Biden being about his reelection campaign or, you know, manufacturing jobs or low unemployment. Sure. I, I certainly understand that concern. But I think the point is is very important that he's making. And he made it when he appeared at the Capitol on the date of his uh, called for subpoena and when he showed up yesterday, which is to say, I'm not running away. I'm not hiding. I'm not trying to avoid testifying. I'm not trying to obstruct your investigation. I am eager to answer your questions. And I am here in the same hearing room where he would testify. I am ready to testify. And it is the Republicans who refuse to take his testimony. It is not Hunter Biden who refuses to give it. And the irony of the Republicans passing an impeachment resolution ostensibly because they say they need more evidence while they are also rejecting evidence from the most critical witness available to them who's willing to give it should not be lost on anyone. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week. Veteran sports commentator Bob Costas is here. Next, his take on Nick Saban and Bill Belichick leaving football after their legendary careers. Stay with us. Our sports lead now dramatic changes to the worlds of college and professional football in just the last day. Decorated NFL head coach Bill Belichick and the New England, New England Patriots parted ways after 24 seasons and six Super Bowl wins. Not seven, of course, because the Philadelphia Eagles won that one. Pete Carroll, considered the winningest head coach for the Seattle Seahawks, yanked from the sidelines. Alabama's Nick Saban retiring after seven career national championships, the most by a head coach at the NCAA football's highest level ever. Three very successful football coaches moving on, ending an era and perhaps altering the sports as we know it, college and professional football. Joining us now, CNN contributor and legendary commentator Bob Costas. Bob, what do you make of these changes and how might it impact the game going forward? Well, leaving Pete Carroll aside for a moment, no disrespect intended, there's a certain symmetry here with Saban and Belichick on the same day because each is inarguably the greatest of his era in their respective categories. There's no disputing that Belichick is the greatest, at the very least, greatest NFL coach of the last couple of decades. And you can make a very strong case for him as the best all time. The same is true about Nick Saban um, in the college ranks. 
Now, if we're talking about all time, then there's Bear Bryant and there's Woody Hayes and, yes, Joe Paterno. And going way back, there's Bud Wilkinson and Newt Rockney at Notre Dame, etc. But I think you can only make perhaps as good a case for them against Saban. Saban, without question, the best of his time and maybe the best of all time. Same thing true of Bill Belichick. You make a case for Vince Lombardi or for Bill Walsh or for Chuck Knoll and a handful of others, and the eras are different and the circumstances are different, but I don't think you can make a better case for any of them than you can for Belichick. So again, Belichick, inarguably the best of his time and perhaps the best of all time. The difference, though, is it appears that Saban is done. It does not appear that Belichick is done, that he's moving on. And there's at least half a dozen, maybe seven, I've lost track, openings now in the NFL for a head coach. And it's almost certain that Bill Belichick will fill one of those openings. Where, where might he go? Where do you think he's most likely to go? Well, you know, when you think about two of the openings, Atlanta and Seattle, the most painful losses in their history. Both came at the hands of Bill Belichick and the Patriots. Seattle's on the goal line and they have a pass intercepted or they would have won back-to-back Super Bowls. So that's a painful one for Pete Carroll. I don't know if Seahawks fans could swallow uh, Bill Belichick showing up and reminding them of that. And even worse for the Atlanta Falcons, who led in a Super Bowl over Brady, Belichick, and the Patriots 28-3. to And the Patriots came back from a 25-point deficit, won in overtime. I think, and I'm not claiming to have the greatest level of expertise here because I'm not as close to it as I once was, but from the outside, it looks like the Chargers are the best bet because they have good personnel and they have in Justin Herbert a very, very good uh, young quarterback who is in place already, and they have some good personnel, Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack on defense. Belichick can't go to a team that has to rebuild. Now, the Chargers were 5-12 and this year, but they lost a lot of games by one score. So they're close in some respects. So that, that appears to be a possibility. It's, it's difficult to, to overstate how important Alabama football is to the people of Alabama. Caitlin Collins, mm-hmm. our oh, anchor, yeah. uh, is a huge Alabama fan, and yeah. she was... Her dad is also an Alabama fan, and he was, they were talking yesterday about um, where he was when he found out Bear Bryant was retiring and comparing it to how Caitlin was feeling mm-hmm. now finding out that, uh, that Saban was, was retiring. Football players purposely go to Alabama because of him, because of the coach. But following his retirement, there's at least one five-star wide receiver who has now decommitted from, from playing there. Uh, Saban's latest contract with the yeah. school was set to run through 2030. Why do you think he called it quick, quits sooner? Well, he says, and it's completely believable, that while his team had an excellent season, came very close right down to the end against the team that ultimately won the national championship, Michigan, in the semifinals, they were very competitive right to the end, that he didn't quite have the same level of energy that he once had. He didn't feel that he could do this to the level of commitment that he once had. And he also felt that if you're talking to a recruit, a recruit wants to to know, are you going to be here? coach. Are you going to be here for the next few years? Then on top of that, you have the changing landscape of college football with name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal, which makes it more difficult even if you do a good job of recruiting and even if you are an institution like Alabama, makes it more difficult to hold a team together. Uh, Saban had a long-term contract that went to the end of this decade for a whole lot of money, so he could have stayed. It makes me believe that this is permanent, that he's stepping aside permanently and has to be content with a mere seven national championships, one at LSU and six at Alabama. 
It is NFL Wild Card Weekend, of course. Who are your picks to come out on top? And ultimately, who's your Super Bowl pick? Well, the Ravens look like the strongest team in the entire league. The, 40, the 49ers went through uh, a tough stretch during the season, but they seem to have bounced back, uh, and they hold a top spot in the NFC. So that's the chalk. It's the easy and obvious thing to say. But Ravens 49ers could reprise a Super Bowl in which Jim Harbaugh, probably headed back to the NFL after winning the national championship in Michigan, was San Francisco's coach, coaching against his brother, John Harbaugh. The Ravens won that Super Bowl over Jim Harbaugh and the 49ers. John Harbaugh is still the coach of the Ravens. Got Thanks. all that? Yeah, I got it. And thank you for not bringing up uh, my poor Eagles. Bob Costas, thank you so much. Always good to see you, sir. Oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, indeed. All right, Jake, take care. Next, saying goodbye to a throwback on this Throwback Thursday. Is that still a thing? Throwback Thursday? Is that, is that gone too? Be right back. Yipes, no more stripes. The end of a gum era in our money lead as the iconic fruit stripe gum is being discontinued. The zebra print treat has been sold since the 1960s. It came in five flavors, wet and wild melon, cherry, lemon, orange, and peach. Although some fans of the gum will tell you that it lost flavor about three seconds after you put it in your mouth. Each, each pack also came with a temporary tattoo of its mascot, Yipes the Zebra. The company behind Fruit Stripes says you might still be able to find it in some stores before it sells out one last time. You know, it was delicious, but honestly, it flavor disappeared after three seconds of chewing. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting there like a delicious, long-lasting piece of fruit stripe crumb. Uh, our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.